This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of February 26th, 2024, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We've spent the last two months focusing on downtown Indianapolis and its role in attracting major sports events, and by extension, burnishing the reputation of the Indianapolis area. Central Indiana isn't necessarily known as a golf mecca, but we are well represented on the national championship stage by Crooked Stick Golf Club and its singular course designed by the legendary Pete and Alice Dye. It recently announced that it will host the 2028 U.S. Senior Open. It last hosted the Senior Open in 2009, drawing nearly 150,000 attendees to Carmel for three days of practices and four days of tournament play. In the last 20 years, Kyrgyzstick has hosted the 2005 Solheim Cup, 2007 USGA Women's Amateur, 2009 U.S. Senior Open, the 2012 BMW Championship, the 2016 BMW Championship, and the 2020 Western Amateur. And this brings us to Tony Pancake, the director of golf at Kirkensick Golf Club, who has worked at the club for 21 years. He didn't compete in any of these events, but in late January, he was announced as the recipient of the highest award granted by the Professional Golfers Association of America. That would be the PGA of America Golf Professional of the Year. In the words of the PGA, the award recognizes leadership, strong moral character, and a substantial record of service to the association and the game of golf. Pancake walks a fine line. He's charged with preserving one of the most significant golf courses in the country while pleasing this exclusive membership. He also needs to be sensitive to contemporary trends in golf while remaining faithful to the purpose of the club when it was founded in 1964, to provide a venue for championship-level golf. For this week's edition of the podcast, he discusses the mix of talents required to do his job justice, from a strong grasp of accounting to an almost instinctive ability to read people's unspoken needs. Golf is a people business, and Pancake explains in detail how the skills needed for success as a golf pro are the same tools needed for success in any business. He also shares a hair-raising story about a last-second trip last year to see his youngest daughter compete in the final of the British Amateur Championship, filled with twists and turns, and ultimately made possible by the members of Crooked Stick. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast this week, Tony Pancake, Director of Golf at Crooked Stick Golf Club in Carmel. Tony, thanks for making time today and having me at the office. Hey, Mason. Thanks. Good to meet you and uh, look forward to spending some time with you this morning. Uh, as we were talking just uh, off microphone a second ago, you grew up in Seymour, Indiana. You attended University of Alabama on a golf scholarship and earned an accounting degree. Is that all correct? That is correct. Yeah, I started playing golf when I was 12 years old, uh, really was into other sports. Um, but I got introduced to golf and uh, just loved playing and uh, played in a lot of junior tournaments in southern Indiana and then uh, ended up playing in some statewide tournaments uh, and then had a chance to go to the University of Alabama to play golf on a scholarship. That was the warmest place that offered me a scholarship, so it was an easy decision <laughs> as to why I went there. How much of your job right now is playing golf and how much of it is accounting? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I Certainly, I love playing golf a lot more than I love accounting. Uh, but I, I do have um, some responsibility with the club just to manage the operation financially. So uh, that background in accounting has been very helpful to me in my career. But playing is definitely more important than, than accounting in terms of what I do every day. Okay. Well, let me dig into that. This is your 20th year or 21st year? Correct. I'm just starting my 21st year here at Crooked okay. Stick. Started in 2004 as the head golf pro. In 2010, you became director of golf and club operations. So if you can, I mean, think about it as a pie chart. What are your job responsibilities? Yeah, so um, I would say my responsibility is just to manage the overall operation of the club. So the the main thing that I try to do is put the right people in place to, to help us uh, really do a great job every day. So um, hiring the office manager, the clubhouse uh, manager, the, our golf course superintendent. We're just really blessed here at Crooked Stick to have some great managers. And it's been my responsibility to kind of put them in place and then communicate to them direction from our club leadership and from our membership as to you know expectations and kind of turn them loose to let them do their job. I always think in my brain about um, country clubs you know, that have like sprawling, like event and catering operations. And that is not crooked stick. I mean, it is golf. That's correct. And I think that's one of the reasons that it works is just because of who we are as a club and, and the culture and the environment we have as a golf club. So if this was a typical country club, I, I probably wouldn't have the, I definitely wouldn't have the time to do all those things. But here, our clubhouse operations a little smaller and pretty much everything we do focuses around golf, and that's where my experience and expertise lies. That makes me a little more qualified to make it work here compared to just a, a regular country club. So why are you good at it? I mean, if, if I'm coming to you and I, I'm a, you know, I'm a kid looking for a mentor and I want to get into golf one way or the other, what do I, who do I need to become in the next 10 years to do what you do? What are you going to tell me? Yeah, you, you ask why I'm good at it. I'm, I'm sure some people might say he's not so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's why we're talking so, today because you got an award for not being good at yeah. it. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure how good at it I am, but I, I will say that what I've learned uh, over 40 years of working in golf is so much about relationships, and a lot of my day is just listening to people and hearing what's on their mind and hearing ways, say from a member's perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of feedback as to how we can operate more efficiently, better, meet their needs more. So I take all that information in, share it with our team, and then we try to figure out, hey, what can we constantly be doing to get better here and to meet the expectations or, or actually exceed the expectations of our members from a, uh, both a golf experience and just an overall club experience. At the same time, I mean, you do need to have some kind of, of a business mind for this kind of thing. You really do. I mean, it's it is we're running a business here, and um, you know we, we've got I would say a really strong image or reputation, uh, a, a brand, so to speak, and we need to maintain that. Pete Dye is a big part of that, um, and the national championships we've hosted. But really, especially from the members' perspective, those things only happen every so often. So the daily golf experience is the most important thing that we do here every day. You know, that, that is like running a business, figuring out what that's going to look like, how we're going to implement that, and how we can do it in a manner that's, um, you know, fiscally responsible. So there's a lot of pieces that go into it. What I've found is the better my relationship is with both our staff and with our membership and the people that we do business with, 
the more success that we have. So I've really worked hard on, on uh, just maintaining those relationships. How big is your staff? Uh, full-time staff, we have about 50 to 55. And then at the peak season, uh, we're, we're obviously a seasonal business with golf here in Indiana, but uh, we'll get up to 90 to 100 staff members here at the club. Oh, wow. See, I'm... <laughs> This is a small clubhouse. So I thought you were going to say 15 instead of 15. Right. So, I mean, can you kind of break it down? I mean, who are all the different employees? What do they do? Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of our, our operation, we have a clubhouse operation, food and beverage, and that would be year round, about 20 employees. Peak season, we're probably up to 30 or 35. Then we have our golf course maintenance operation that's around 22 off season and then peak season might get up to 25 and then the the golf shop we're in the off season mode we'll only have four or five employees but then peak season we might have 30 so Mm. that's kind of how we're getting up there and then we also have the business office or the administrative side and that's that stays pretty consistent throughout the year that's uh, two or three people what kind of feedback are you most likely to get from members some guys make it a beeline for you after his round, <laughs> and you're thinking in your head, okay, it's either A, B, or C. Members are really good at sharing ideas for improvement, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we probably don't hear as many compliments as, as we would like. But, you know, at the same time, we, we realize that's what it is. And I can remember when I was uh, when I was in school and I would take a test, I didn't, I didn't go back and look at the questions I got right. I, I went to look at the questions that I got wrong because I wanted to get better. And so that feedback is... You know, I, we have a new member orientation for um, people when they join the club, and one of the things I ask them for is feedback. And uh, I say, hey, I, I know people don't want to be considered a complainer, and so sometimes they're afraid to share their opinion, but I really value that. It's a gift to me to know what's going on in your head and kind of how your experience is. And it might be an opportunity for me to um, help train an employee. It might be an opportunity for me to help coach the member understand well, this is our culture. Here's why we do what we do. Any feedback is good feedback. And, you know, I've learned over, again, 40 years. I don't take it personally. When somebody's had a bad experience, I just have to have the right attitude and look for ways to improve that. Uh, all of our members have my cell phone number, and they know they can call me anytime. And How many members are there? We have 225 what I'll call uh, regular local members. Uh, there's actually about 290 families that can play golf here. We have some other membership classifications, uh, junior members, senior members, transitionless members. So all in, we have 290 local families that can play. But it's it's a small club. We play um, last year 19,000 rounds. Historically, we were a 16 to 17,000 round club, but COVID jumped us up to 23,000, and we've been kind of um, dropping down a little bit every year. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah. So you are, <laughs> that actually was a... I hate to say the word benefit, but it actually, your frequency with which members were using the club increased. Uh, dramatically, yes. Yeah. I mean, to go from 19,000 to 23,000 rounds, that's a huge increase for same number of members and, and all that. And, you know, we had no idea what to expect then. We were somewhat expecting play to decrease, and it actually did just the opposite of that. And I think golf was a safe place for people, and just based on how they were working, they figured out – you know, they were working from home, they would get up earlier, or they'd get their work done more efficiently, and then uh, take time to play golf. Is the membership capped? Is there that number capped? It is capped. Uh, all of our membership categories are capped, and uh, we have a full membership with a, uh, you know, I would say a substantial wait list. You never know um, how long it'll take to get into a club, but 
so you know, of our regular membership, we have, uh, as I said, 225, and we have about uh, 40 people on a wait list right now. Mm-hmm. And we see turnover of five or six members a year in a, in a typical year. So, uh, and the and how, what is the point of capping it as it relates to kind of the culture that you're trying to create at the club? Yeah, we, we want uh, just a really relaxed atmosphere, and we really want people to be able to come out and play golf anytime that they want to. So we don't have starting times here at Crooked Stick. And w- one of the ways we can do that is just capping the number of members, and, and that, that in it itself somewhat controls the number of rounds that we have. How much does it cost to be a member? You know, I'd, I'd rather not share what the actual uh, cost of the initiation fee is. It, it changes um, – um, or it has changed over the years, and, and I, I really feel like that would be something that I'd like to protect just from a membership standpoint. Mm. Um, but I would say we're we're very competitive in the Indianapolis market, and if you compared Crooked Stick to other top 100 clubs around the country, it is a bargain to be a member here. Is there any rule about quoting Caddyshack? Because I will pay whatever the membership is if I can have a Caddyshack free round. <laughs> Um, no, no, there's no rule about that. Ah, so. <laughs> come on, pancake. <laughs> that just drives me crazy. Uh, I'm sorry. So knowing very little about what you do, here's how I was imagining your job. And tell me if I'm close. And then think about it in terms of like the art world. On one hand, I see you as like a museum curator and that you are in charge of preserving what is widely considered to be a highly significant example of golf course design. I mean, it is literally a work of art. I think everyone in the golf world thinks that. On the other hand, I imagine you have to be really well-versed in con- the contemporary art of golf course design and maintenance. You need to know what the trends are in amateur and championship play, the latest in the mechanical aspects of taking care of a golf course. Am I on the right track? Yeah, I would say it's it's not so much about the design of the course. Um, I, I really know nothing about that. Uh, I, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with Pete Dye, and he constantly reminded me that I know nothing about <laughs> golf course architecture or golf course design. So, and, and we're just blessed to have this incredible golf course here and the fact that he lived on the golf course for all those years and uh, was constantly tweaking it to make it better. I mean, uh, this was his kind of firstborn championship golf course, and it was his baby. He just uh, took so much pride in the in the club. But uh, take it very seriously, my role of just maintaining who we are and the traditions that we have here at the club. The club's 60 years old. We've had an incredible history in 60 years with these with the championship golf we've had here and the reputation of the club. And trying to find that balance of, you know, what we've done historically and, and, and what our traditions are here, but also, you know, changes to the game and, and kind of what expectations are going forward with newer members, that's a, that's a fine line to walk and constantly something that as a club we're discussing amongst our leadership. And, um, you know, we're just hopeful that we're doing the right thing for, for Pete and Alice and their long-term vision. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, Pete and Alice lived on the 18th? They did, yeah. They had a house right there on, on the 18th hole. And yeah. So, yeah, we were fortunate to see them almost every day when they were when they were living. And we sure miss them, I'll tell you. They, they just mean so much to this club. What do you enjoy about the teaching side of being a pro? And maybe I, sh- I should ask, how much teaching do you do? Yeah, I, I still teach a lot. I really enjoy teaching golf. It's actually how I anticipated my career path in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I started off as a teaching professional and a lot of my mentors in golf were uh, nationally renowned teachers. 
so I had some early exposure to that and, and a lot of experience with that. And it was just something I loved to do. But but after doing that for a few years, I was just physically and mentally worn out of giving golf lessons all day long. And I just realized that my skill set was probably more designed for an overall operations manager, and teaching is just part of that. So um, I give lessons every day. Those lessons could be to a beginning junior golfer. They could be to a collegiate golfer who's an elite player. They could be to a senior golfer who's just trying to hit the ball further. I mean, it, it's all aspects of, of um, the type of players you could imagine. Yeah. And uh, I, I really enjoy that part of it. So it you're, you're, I imagine your like emotional IQ or your sense of empathy really comes into play for that kind of thing. I mean, like, like you say, to listen to what they want and to give them something that's meaningful to them. You're not just teaching like, you're not teaching the Tony Pancake way. That's exactly right. I mean, there's no one way to, to teach golf. I mean, there are certain people that teach that way, but they're teaching, I would say, mostly elite players that are looking for a certain way to learn how to play golf. But uh, what I would describe my situation is most, or not most, but many of my lessons are to, say, Mr. Jones, who went out and played today and played poorly, and he's going to play again tomorrow, <laughs> and he wants to win back that $5 that he lost today. So I've got to figure out a way to make him play better tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you went to, say, a, a national teacher, say, uh, a Hank Haney, for example, he has a certain method that he's teaching people, or a David Ledbetter, a method that they're teaching uh, these elite players. I, I would say my method is really trying to figure out, all right, what does my student really need in this particular moment, and how can I help them get there? Did you take accounting in college anticipating that you might end up on sort of the administrative side of golf, or was there something about math that you just really liked? Yeah, I just really like math, and I like <laughs> to be able to balance things out at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for some reason, and I had people at uh, yeah, I was going to go into the business program in Alabama, and I said, well, if, you know, what, what would you advise me on? And people said, well, if you thought you could handle the accounting side of that, then, then that would be a great way to, to do that. Plus, um, I knew of some people that worked in accounting firms that were golfers, and they had told me that, you know, if you're a, a good golfer and you're working for an accounting firm, you're going to be a huge asset to them. So I thought that was a possibility for me that – you know, as a former collegiate golfer with an accounting background, I'd be really marketable upon graduation. But I just, um, I was so drawn towards the game of golf and being around it all the time that, that uh, that's the career path I chose. So why would you be a great asset? Working in an accounting firm is a great golfer. Is that like for client relations? Or? That's exactly right. Yeah. Going out with clients, playing golf, and, um, you know, building relationships that way. Gotcha. Yeah. I'd say one thing that, golf does is you know you spend four hours with people walking around a golf course and you learn how to uh, interact with people and deal with people and and read people um, one of the things I learned early on in my career is how to kind of really read people when you're interacting with them you know see if you can figure out what's going on in their head before they ask you and so if you can solve people's problems before they ask uh, ask you to then then uh, uh, that's even better than being good at solving problems, if that makes sense. Oh, so you could go into sales after this if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think as a golf pro, and we actually see that. I mean, yeah. a lot of people get into golf when they're, they're – there's these professional golf management programs, and there's a lot of uh, – they're, they're through universities around the United States. And uh, these kids will go through them. They'll do these internships. 
and then they'll start off as a uh, career as a golf professional, but they'll transition into the business world because of so many things that they've learned by being a golf professional, uh, relating to people and, and all that. It, uh, it really helps them in their career uh, from a business perspective as well. Wow, that's fascinating. When you went to Alabama, let's say you're going in as a freshman, what in your mind did you think was going to happen? Did, were you going to be a professional golfer? Or you're just like and say, well, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It's amazing that it's uh, uh, over 40 years ago. But uh, I went to the University of Alabama. My favorite, as I said earlier, it was the warmest place to offer me a golf scholarship. And my game had been getting a little bit better every year. So I just anticipated I would go to college and continue to improve. Jerry Pate was my favorite golfer. I loved his golf swing. He's a graduate of the University of Alabama. And uh, Conrad Railing was the coach there who had coached Jerry. So I just thought, you know, hey, this is all lined up. I'll be a tour player in five or six years. And, and that was my goal. I mean, I wanted to be a, you know, I wanted to play golf on television and, and uh, be a tour player. But when I got to school, I realized that there was a whole nother level of golf. Um, I had a couple tour players on my team, and I had a chance to watch them play and practice every day, and, and they were just better than I was. Like guys who were already on the team, on the tour, or would be on the No, team? they were, uh, they eventually became tour okay. players, yeah. but you could see at that time they were going to be, they were that good. The good good news for me is I figured out early on that uh, that was not going to work, <laughs> and so I could pivot and, and uh, make some good decisions for uh, that benefited me later. How many assistant golf professionals have you employed? Over the years? Wow, that's a great question. So I've been a head golf professional since 1988. So that's 36, 37 seasons. Each year I probably have have had two, three, four full-time assistants. And then I would have another three, four, five um seasonal assistants slash interns so you know you do the math I mean it's a couple hundred actually and and um, I've been fortunate to have some really great people work for me you asked me earlier on if you if you were trying to coach somebody maybe what the key thing would be if I've been able to do one thing well it's been identifying people who are really strong in terms of their integrity, character, and become great employees here and then go on to successful careers. Did I hear that once you knew that you had won the the PGA Award, that you had a dinner with, I mean, what, several dozen of these former assistants or maybe current assistants as well? Is that right? We did, and, and that yeah. was uh, we we did that in January at the PGA show, and that was the highlight of the show for me. I mean, people say, "Hey, it had to be really cool to be introduced as the 2024 Golf Professional of the Year," and, and it was, but really the highlight was celebrating this with a lot of my former assistants, and because they, they're such a big part of this. I mean, you know, it's an individual award, but the reality of it is, it's not an individual award. It's a, a team award, and the award happened because of being on teams like the Crooked State Golf Club or the Valhalla Golf Club or, you know, these former assistants who have worked for me and done a great job making me look good while they've worked for me, but then they've gone on to their own jobs. So, I mean, just here in town, I think we have four or five former Crooked Stick assistants who are head golf professionals, and they're, they're doing a wonderful job for their clubs. And, and uh, I've done a lot of reflection over the last, um, you know, couple months after receiving this award or hearing about it. And the thing I'm most proud of is just 
uh, seeing how well those um, assistants have, have done with their careers and the impact they're making on people's lives through golf. It's, it's pretty special. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast in my interview with Tony Pancake, Director of Golf at Crooked Stick Golf Club in Carmel. Uh, okay, quick detour. I need to ask you about your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I checked on Ancestry.com. So the name Pancake in America goes back at least to the 1700s. Okay. <laughs> The greatest concentration of families named Pancake was in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Now, you grew up in Seymour, so this seems to check out. Do you have any sense of like the, the Pancake family history? Yeah, so I had an uncle that did some research on that, and uh, he told me it was a, it's a German name. Somehow, a uh, family moved from Germany to the United States, and their last name was somewhat like Fritter, and so it got changed to Pancake somehow. Oh, of course. Um, and there's a lot of pancakes in Ohio, in Virginia. Uh, my family was more in um, southeastern Indiana. But, you know, people ask me about my name all the time. And uh, <laughs> uh, what I tell them is it was a pretty tough name in, in elementary school because uh, <laughs> people love to make fun of me then. But as an adult, it is a great name because, you know, when somebody meets me, they, they never forget. And uh, they, they can't remember my first name is Tony, but they can remember that my last name is Pancake. That's what I figured. That, so, I mean, yeah, the yeah. best thing about it is people are never going to forget. That's exactly right. Who's the, who's the guy that runs Crooked Stick? I, Pancake? Something yeah. about Pancake? <laughs> that totally makes sense because my family uh, is from Germany, and we were the Junkmans, okay. um, which in America became Youngman mm-hmm. and then became a couple other things. But, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I'm glad to know that. So when you were 24, when you started as head professional at Valhalla in Louisville, well, maybe, maybe explain to listeners a little bit about Valhalla and, and what it was like at that time. I interviewed for the job at Valhalla in 1988. The club was brand new. It was a Nicholas course, um, signature course by Jack Nicholas, and it had opened in 1986. So it was a it was a relatively new club. They only had about 110 members at that time, and they were a growing club. And they, they needed a new head golf professional. And I, I was only 24 years old. I had no head professional experience. Uh, it's a total miracle that, <laughs> that, uh, that I got the job. And actually, I mean, it's such a, it's like a God thing that uh, I went through this interview. And I'd say it didn't really go all that well. I'd, I'd never been on a head professional interview before. And it didn't go that well. And I was um, being taken back to the airport. And it started snowing. And we got like six inches of snow in the next um, couple hours and my flight got canceled. Uh. So I ended up staying another night and had a chance to meet with the owners of the club the next morning. And I had dinner with our, uh, with the general manager of the club and just that extra time with them is how I got that job. If it would have been just based on my two hour interview, I would have never been selected as their head golf professional. But, um, luckily, a uh, big snowstorm canceled my flight, <laughs> and I got to spend a lot of extra time with them. And I think just 
you know, that extra time allowed me to relax more and allowed yeah. me to really get to connect with them. And I think they realized that while I was young and had, young in years, I had a, a great network of professionals that I could uh, reach out to if needed. And so uh, that experience from my training w- was really beneficial in that. So you eventually become head professional at Baltimore Country Club. And explain to folks, what is the difference between a Baltimore Country Club and, and a Valhalla? Yeah, huge difference. So Valhalla was similar to Crooked Stick. It was a golf club, and we had uh, about 225 members. And then I go to the Baltimore Country Club, which is a 36-hole facility, two golf courses. Uh, they had a downtown club, and then they had what was called Five Farms, which is where the two golf courses were. And we had over 3,500 members. I mean, it was just a huge operation. So, for example, I could not do what I do here at Crooked Stick. I could not do at the Baltimore <laughs> Country Club. Um, but it was a, a great experience for me, a, a great place, and, um, you know, really pushed me to um, learn how to apply some of the things that I'd learned at Valhalla at a, in a small environment to a really big environment and just a lot more people. And one of the things that's always been really important to me is learning people's names and, mm. and being able to refer to them by name. And when you have 225 people, it's not that difficult, right? But when you have 3,500, it's way more challenging. And uh, um, so, gosh, I can remember that that first year I spent so much time just learning who people were and pushing myself to, to really try to Well, I heard, that, um, I heard you tell a story once that even before you started, you asked for the membership roles <clears throat> just so you could start taking notes. And just kind of getting used to the names. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Anytime I've taken a new job, I've had someone from the club send me the membership roster. What I would do is just go through and look for ways that maybe I could connect people, maybe what kind of business they were in, or uh, maybe, you know, if they had children or something that were going to be in the junior golf program. Just looking for ways to connect, right? Mm-hmm. Um but then I would study those names, and then as I would get started at the club, if I met you, for example, today, then I would go back to the directory and I'd highlight your name and write down which day I met you on. Just some things from our conversation that um, you know that I would remember about you or that, or that I wanted to remember about you. And it might be that you're left-handed. It might be that you're a scratch player. It might be that you and your wife love to play on Sundays. It might be that... Um, your members at a club in Florida or something like that. So just so, you know, I was always just trying to associate things um, with the person's name just to make it easier to remember them and to build those relationships as quickly as I could. So that first year, would you like, go home and just drill <laughs> the directory? I would, yeah. So then I would wow. go back and I would, you know, just take time to review that. And again, it, when you have 200 members, that's pretty easy to do. When you've got uh, 3,500, it's a lot more challenging. Would you call yourself a naturally gregarious person, or is that something that you work at? That's a great question, and the answer is no. Uh, I am um, very, I would say by nature, I'm more what I would almost say shy. I would rather stand behind the scenes. Um, I I don't enjoy being, and I don't want that to come across the wrong way. I'm a little uncomfortable being in the spotlight. I'm a little uncomfortable with a microphone in my hand. Um, it's something I've really worked at a lot. And I can remember when I first started in golf, I mean, I was so, I, I couldn't even sleep at night if I thought I had to get up in front of the members and mm. and talk about something. But, you know, over the years, I've learned how to do it and gotten better at it and gotten more comfortable with it. But my personality is way more, leans towards um, 
being more behind the scenes. Uh, I would say as a kid, I would always, you know, I would wait for people to speak to me before I would speak to them. Now I have, I realized early on in my career that that wasn't going to work as a golf professional. I needed to be the one to initiate the conversation. So uh, I had to push myself out of my comfort zone to do that. So how did you then end up uh, coming to Crooked Stick? I think it was my fifth year at the Baltimore Country Club. We, My wife and I are both from Indiana, and we really wanted to raise our kids in the Midwest. Our, our um, family was still here. And while we were loving our time there, our kids were getting to the age that we just felt like if there was a good opportunity in the Midwest, we'd like to consider moving back. Jim Farrell was the golf professional here, head golf professional. I'd known Jim for a long time from my the holidays, and uh, – I knew he was getting ready to retire. Uh, luckily, in 2002, the club reached out to me about Jim retiring at the end of 2003 and said, you know, hey, would you have any interest in talking to us about coming back here? And I had shared with Jim that, you know, that I had a desire to get back to the Midwest. So I think he put in a, in a good word for me there. Kind of a cute story about this. I had interviewed for maybe four or five jobs in my career up to this point. And every time I'd interviewed, except for that first one at, at Valhalla, the interviews had gone really well and they had offered me the job right away. So, but in this case, this was a job I really wanted. And I actually went through six job interviews at this club before they offered it to me. And I, I didn't think that they were going to. Um, and I, I had turned down a really good job because I knew this was a possibility. And I, I told my wife, Libby, I said, you know, I, I hope I didn't make a mistake by turning down that job because I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get this job. And But luckily it worked out for me. And um, I, I knew that if they gave me a chance here that that, uh, that this club was just like a perfect fit for me. And I thought I would be a good fit for them just based on my background and being from Indiana as well. And the fact that I wanted to end my career here. And, mm. and so um, they've not had very many golf professionals here. I think Jim was here uh, 35 years all in, something like that. So, um, yeah, to be able to follow in his footsteps has been terrific. Jim and I are a lot different in terms of personalities, but we both uh, were exactly the same in how much we love this club and how much we care about this club, and we just um, have felt this uh, responsibility to be good stewards of, of the club. So they were just being thorough. It, it wasn't like they were on the, on the ledge necessarily or on the fence. They just – Everybody wanted to talk to you. You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I think that they were being thorough, but I also was told uh, going into one of the last couple of interviews that I was behind in the in the interview process. What? Uh, they so that tell I, you that? Yes, they did. <laughs> they told me I needed to step it up a little bit, which I, I think might have been a strategy just to see how I responded to that. Sure. And um, um, so luckily they liked the way I responded, I guess. So one of your interviews was with Pete Dye that it included playing around with them. Is that right? It did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what's going on. <laughs> it's, it's, it's around a golf with an interview. So what was that experience like? At that time, in the early 2000s, we had the Pete Dye Cup, which is a national tournament. Club professionals from around the country would play and uh, bring a scratch amateur. And so part of this interview process, they invited myself and the other finalists to, to compete in the Pete Dye Cup. And it was, again, early May. I was coming from Baltimore, so I hadn't played any golf at all. I was a little insecure about my game. And, and this other candidate that was interviewing is one of the, uh, he's one of the finest 
uh, competitive club professionals in the country. I mean, uh, he's actually won our club professional championship, and he's playing on the Champions Tour now. I knew what a great player he was, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this guy's going to shoot 68, and I'm going to shoot 83. I'm a little uptight, and then they send out the pairings, and it's myself and Boyd Hovde, who they assigned me as a partner. Mr. Hovde is a longtime member here. A very successful attorney here in town, a great player, Indiana State Amateur Champion. But he's a little bit of an intimidating guy, all right? I mean, just his reputation and, and um, how much respect he has earned over the years. And and then I see, so I'm with him, and then I'm with Mickey Powell, past president of the PGA, and Pete Dye, the guy that, you know, <laughs> is, is Mr. Crooked Stick himself. So I, I didn't sleep at all the night before. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, uh, it was so nerve-wracking and... Uh, but luckily, uh, uh, it was a miracle. I played uh, some great golf that that week, and uh, uh, I ended up tying this this guy Bam! that uh, uh, <laughs> was such a great player. And, and uh, so, uh, but I'm sure that they were evaluating too, like how you were uh, relating with Buck. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And you know, I, I tell golf professional all the time and we talk about hey how important it is is it to be a good player or to play golf and, and I think it's extremely important for PGA members and golf professionals because your members love it when you play golf with them now if you're a phenomenal player they they like that they like to be able to talk about how great of a player their club professional is but if you're not you can still have a great time with your members out on a golf course and you can help them with their game um and, you know, it's just that camaraderie you're building and, and those relationships that you're building. So you don't need to be a phenomenal player. It, 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 it's a benefit if you can. But the, the main thing you're doing is just building relationships and watching them play golf, figuring out ways you can help them enjoy the game more, play better, things like that. So when you became director of golf and club operations, how much would you and Pete sit around and talk about what he wanted to do with the course? Uh, it was 2010 when I got this role as director of operations, and I knew Pete was kind of getting to the end of his career, and so I went to him, and you know, he, every day he's walking the golf course, playing the golf course, riding the course, and he's got this yellow notepad with him, and, and he's making notes. I, I, I know what he's doing, and so I knew he wanted to make some changes to the golf course, <laughs> so I went to him and I said, Mr. Dye, you know, I've just been put in this new role and I know you want to make some changes to the course. I'd love to help you with that. And maybe if you just share with me what you want to do, I can strategically think about how to present this to the club leadership so that we can get it done. Cause you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like for you to get this done. He said, Oh, Tony, that's easy. It's real easy. And I said, well, what, what, what do you need? He said, I need $8 million. <laughs> and 2010, $8 million, was, that, that was a yeah. pretty, big, pretty big number for a golf course uh, improvement project. And uh, I said, $8 million, Mr. Dye, what, what are you going to do with $8 million? He said, well, I'm going to start over. I've learned a lot the last 50 years. And, I mean, that was just typical Pete. Um, was he so, serious? Oh, he, well, he wanted the $8 million. I don't know that oh, he would have okay. started over. But uh, the thing about him that was – so incredible is you know he was a great player people don't realize what a what a good player he was but so he had this perspective of championship golf and seeing it through the eyes of a great golfer he also was like an artist i mean he just had this vision for things that that i couldn't see at all just how he he would tie it all together and and the different angles that people would play from and pete die golf courses that they generally are they have this reputation of being so difficult. Well, the difficulty is in your mind. It's not in reality. He's just convinced you that 
you can't hit it over here. You can't do this. And it's, he's working on your brain the whole time that you're playing golf. And, and, uh, so to, you know, be able to spend some time with him and, and just hear him talk about how he would do those things was, was pretty incredible. So since you have, you have been here, Krugersick has played host to six national and international championship events. Is this the Solheim Cup, 2005 Solheim Cup, 2007 USGA Women's Amateur, 2009 U.S. Senior Open, uh, 2012 BMW Championships, 2016 BMW Championships, 2020 Western Amateur. Those last three occurred when you were director of golf and club operations. How does your life change when the club is hosting one of these things? Uh, yeah, it, it changes a lot, actually. And there's so many moving parts to that those championships we become not just a private club for members and their guests we're now trying to host the best players in the world there's a media component there's a volunteer component there's a spectator component Um, there's just all these there's a financial component to it there's all these different things that we don't normally deal with and a lot of it is done with we, we've hired management companies at times. We've done some of them internally. And when we're doing them internally, I take certainly a much more much more of a leadership role. Um, our membership has had a lot of experience with these tournaments. And then, fortunately, some of my background with the 96 PGA Championship at, at Bahala helped prepare me for it as well. Yeah, it's normally a three-year process. To, that's in advance of the tournament. And then, you know, you're dealing with it for at least six months to a year after. So... It's like a, a four-year uh, commitment from a club when you host a national championship like that. So this is why you're not doing it every year. <laughs> That's exactly right. We, we, um, I would say a few reasons why. One, you don't want to um, kind of tax your membership in the golf course and take that away from them. That's a, a real important to us. Our members are paying dues, and, and they deserve to play their golf course, and we don't want to take it away from them um, any more than we have to. Um, but then also – from a volunteer and a uh, community support standpoint, financially, you can't go to these companies every year and ask them to support a, um, a golf tournament. And um, so to do it every four or five or six years, uh, that probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. Before the Solheim Cup, it had been the 93 Women's Open. So we had gone 12 years without any kind of a national championship. And, and that was probably a little bit too long. Uh, the Solheim Cup was extremely popular, probably because of that, from a especially from a fan perspective. Um, and then we had Nancy Lopez as a captain, which was awesome. Uh, Annika Sorenstam played in that as well, kind of at the end of her career. Probably those are the two best women players of all time, and that was pretty special for us. But then uh, we kind of were on a on a quick run there. We had 05, 07, 09. So those events. I'm working on the 07 Western Am at the same time as the Solheim Cup and then the 09 Senior Open. Why, you know, we're, we're, those events are even overlapping a little bit, just trying to prepare for them and mm-hmm. making sure we're doing all the right things. And, you know, people say all the time, well, what's your priority in that? And, and the priority is always the same, is that we want everyone that's a, that comes in contact with the club to leave here and say that was an incredible experience whether you're a player or you're a caddy or you're a volunteer or you're just a general spectator, maybe you're a a corporate partner, um, somebody from the media. Basically, I would try to put myself in the shoes of all those people and say, what are their expectations? And then I would go visit 
uh, host sites and try to be in those roles and see what was going on and figure out how could we maybe just do it just a little bit better. And that way when people leave here, they would say, wow, that was incredible. And I'm assuming like the PGA or USGA, they're not picking names out of a hat. There's probably some kind of bid process, just like Indianapolis does for the big events that it hosts. So I mean, you have probably have to prepare some kind of proposal to grab each one of these, and you're in competition with other clubs. Uh, we are, especially the, the major events. Now, if you're, say, um, a U.S. Women's Amateur, for example, those events, they're looking more for just the reputation of the golf course and support of the membership. But, you know, when it comes to um, any type of a, an event that has a kind of the financial component, like a, a PGA Tour event or a, a major championship, there, there's always a bid process on those things. And so th- they're looking at the golf course. They're looking at um, volunteer support from the membership. They're looking at um, community support financially ticket sales, volunteers, just all those. They're looking at our facilities and say, all right, you know, where can you house all these things? And, you know, one of the things as a smaller club, we're really challenged with that. We have a small clubhouse and there's not a whole lot that we can do for for things um, like a media center. And and so Mm -hmm. we have to build a lot of that stuff, volunteer headquarters. So um, we put a plan together and luckily for us, we've had enough championships that that we kind of have a footprint that we can show people. And the club has such a good reputation in those, uh, from those championships. Um, I think that really helps us. So when, you know, when they ask somebody who is affiliated with the 2012 BMW championship, they say the one at Crooked Stick was awesome. And that's why we got 2016. And the more success we have with the events, the more opportunity we have in the future. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about is your kids. Uh, you have four? Yes. Four kids. Who are the kids? Uh, so we have four children. Uh, our oldest is a daughter, Allie, and she lives in Nashville. She's married with two children herself. Our oldest son is TJ. He's an associate pastor at a church in Denton, Texas. Uh, he and his wife have three children. Two of them are adopted. Uh, my first grandchild was was a nine-year-old boy, which <laughs> how cool is that as <laughs> a golf right. pro? Uh, first birthday for him, I was able to give him a set of golf clubs, and he could use them. Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. Uh, our youngest boy, Trent, is um, Trent's 28, just got married in November. And then our baby is Annabelle. Uh, she's only 21, so uh, she's the youngest by far. And uh, she's a senior at Clemson University. Uh, she's our most competitive golfer. All the kids played golf growing up, junior golf. Um, three of the four played in college. And then Annabelle, I think probably because she had older brothers and sisters playing, uh, she's maybe a little more competitive than the others. And, and uh, uh, so she's had a little bit more success as a player. But it's- I don't want to sell her short. I mean, she's a very high-level collegiate player. Senior at Clemson, plays golf at Clemson. Last year, she played in her first international event. Is that right? She did, yeah. Um, she played in the uh, British Women's Amateur, first time overseas to play, and she had just a great week, ended up making match play, and uh, she won her first five matches, got to the finals, and uh, ended up losing in the finals, but it was just an incredible week for her and real confidence boost and, and helped her ranking a lot to the point where uh, I actually looked yesterday. She's ranked uh, 72nd in the world, and uh, I think she's like 22 or 23 in the United States. So As an amateur. Uh, as an amateur, yeah. Wow. Fe- female women's amateur player. And um, that ga- got her an uh, invitation into the 2024 Augusta National Women's Amateur, which is, gosh, it's only uh, six weeks away. Uh, we're really looking forward to that in, in early April this year. 
so let's let's end with this story of how uh, while she is playing at at the the British Amateur uh, that you end up going at the very last second. Can you walk me through that. So she's doing great. She's in the quarterfinals. What's happening here at that time? Yeah, this is an incredible story. So the the tournament, I, the reason I didn't go was it was our member guest weekend, which is our biggest event of the year. I was able to kind of follow her matches because it was five hours earlier since she's over in Europe. Uh, so she had, she got to the quarterfinals on Saturday morning. And so I got up at 3 a.m. and uh, uh, I couldn't sleep. Plus I've, I've got this tournament going on that we're running as well. But so I watched her win that match. Uh, it ended about seven o'clock in the morning. And so that was when we were getting ready to start the fourth round of our member guest. And so our members, they had been kind of following along too. It was actually being televised at that point. So they were following along on a live stream on their phone and most of them knew about it. And um, some of them said, hey, if she happens to win this last match, you, you got to figure out a way to get over there. So I had actually the night before looked into a flight just in case. And there was a, a flight on Delta and I thought, hey, you know, this, this might work out perfect. Well, sure enough, she wins this this semifinal match. She wins, I think, three and two. Uh, it ended about the same time this match of our member guest, uh, this fourth round match of the member guest. So these people fled my office and they're like, Tony, you got to, you know, you got to go over there. And I'm like, uh, you know, let me let me look into the ticket and all that. Well, we looked every airline and we're looking how to fly, you know, out of Louisville, out of um, out of Chicago, out of Cincinnati. And there's there's just no flights available. That Delta flight that I had found, somebody booked the ticket overnight. So we basically had given up. And so I said, well, hey, check this thing on American. So I go to this American flight and there's one seat left. It's American to Indy to Boston to Heathrow. And the, the ticket's $10,000. I'm like, well, I would love to go there, but I just don't. <laughs> I really can't afford a $10,000 ticket. Um, and the guy said, book the ticket. We'll take care of it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is the member. These are members of the club. Yeah. And uh, so I booked this ticket. And, and five minutes later, I'm in my car driving to the airport because I only had – I only had two hours, and I thought, well, it's an international flight. I'm not even sure they'll let me do it. Luckily, I had my passport with me. I got through security just in time to make this flight, fly to, to Boston. Every I get off the airplane. Every flight is delayed. Um, so I'm thinking, well, I've, oh. I'm, I've got no chance to make it. But I get to the international terminal. There's one flight that's, that's on time. And uh, so I... I had to book a rental car uh, there because I didn't I didn't have a way to get from Heathrow to the Princess Golf Club, which was 90 miles. So I uh, I get on National, I book a rental car, and I made sure I booked a a ticket that had or a, a rental car that was an automatic because I knew I was driving on the wrong side of the road. Get on this flight, we land, everything's going perfect. I get to the rental car place, and the guy says, "Here's your car right here." And I go get in. It's a it's a stick shift. <laughs> I said, "No, I, I reserved it." An automatic. I don't think I can drive a stick on the wrong side of the road and, you know, wrong side of the car. Luckily, the pedals were the same. He said, this is the only car I have. I said, I'll take it. It took me two and a half hours to drive the 90 miles because of the 75 roundabouts. I oh, for around. real, yeah. It was so awesome. It was Father's Day. The sun was out. And I get there, and she's walking up the ninth hole. She hits it to about four feet, makes a birdie. And it, it was just awesome. Something I'll never forget. That's amazing. 
Yeah. Did she she know that you were like literally on the way? Like you had landed and that you were coming? Yeah. So, um, yeah, sorry I get emotional when I talk about that. Um, Well, I'm not sorry about that. so I had asked her, I said, hey, if I could, after she won her semifinal match, I said, if I could find a ticket, would you be okay if I came over? And, you know, she's winning all these matches. I don't want to kind of ruin yeah, right. the, the mojo. Yeah. <laughs> so she said, I'd love it if you could be here. But I didn't tell her that because I, I, I just knew so many things could go wrong that I didn't want to, that I didn't want to risk it. So we didn't tell her that. Libby was ca- there catting for her, and Libby did not tell her that morning. She just... Uh, um, she knew I was coming. I was texting her, and uh, she just didn't want Annabelle to get her hopes up, and then yeah. it'll not work out. So, right. So, and she so, didn't want her looking. You know, where's Dad? Well, right. At what point did she did she see you? Yeah, she saw me at, on the ninth green. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> what, what did she like do? Yeah, she uh, just a big smile on her face, and she came over and gave me a big hug. So it was uh, it was something I'll never forget. That's amazing, and it was. I mean, it's made possible because your members sent you. Yeah. I mean, not only the covering the cost financially, but, you know, the member guest is our, that's our biggest tournament. And uh, we've got 60 guests and, and um, I'm the one that's running the tournament. So to, to give me the opportunity to leave in that was just, that was, it was incredible. My thanks again to Tony Pancake. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. With a new mayor and a completely new city council in Westfield, developers have resumed submitting projects to a city they say they've avoided for the past four years. Daniel Bradley explains how fresh faces have cleared the recent impediments to growth in Westfield. Also in this week's issue, Taylor Wooten unpacks the challenges in Indianapolis of consolidating and relocating several city-county government departments into the same building in downtown's core. And Mickey Shuey profiles Mel Raines, who in June will become CEO of Pacer Sports and Entertainment. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.